Chapter Seventeen. Mira Duradam, Dira, Queen of Erebor. Dira was the daughter of master smiths Hori and Theki, both burdened dwarfs of the Battle of Azanulbizar. After the loss of her parents, she made her way as a refugee to the Iron Hills. She arrived young, poor, and determined to make a name for herself. Her talent lay in her smithing. Dira was the finest and most skilled steelsmith to emerge from the Iron Hills in decades. Her mail was sought after by all, and she was able to count kings amongst her clients. One of her greatest works was a brigandine gifted to the king in exile, Thorin Oakenshield, as a present from his cousin Dane. Soft-spoken, intensely private, but as true and strong and determined as the steel she loves, Dira is tall, wiry, and black-haired, with dark skin that has been reddened by her forge over the decades. She met Dane, the new lord of the Iron Hills, through her work. He did not recognize his one, due to his great grief and his heavy burden of care after the death of his father and the settling of so many refugees. Thira, however, was patient. She brought him a gift of a new iron foot, set about with cunning straps and workings to make his walking easier. As Dane walked with new purpose, he was able to recognize the kindness that had prompted such a gift. He began to frequent her workshop more often. They were married in TA 2814, and their son, Thorin, called the Stonehelm, was born in 2866. Dira was uncomfortable with their elevation to prominence, especially after the reclamation of Erebor, and mostly stayed in her forges and out of the spotlight. Her shrewd husband accepted this and sought her advice in privacy. The world was fair, the mountains tall, in days before the fall of mighty kings in and So, Keeley said, fidgeting. His maker sighed, his eyes turning upon the young dwarf. Back again, my child. Keeley quaked a little under the weight of that unearthly gaze and then he chewed upon his lip, drawing himself up. Well, yes? Mahal laughed softly. Keeley felt it as a quake under his ribcage. To petition me again, no doubt. Well, a bit, yes, Keeley admitted, and sprawled himself by the base of the anvil. He touched it curiously, following the intricate carvings with his fingers. They made words that his mind could not comprehend and shied away from. He had the feeling that nobody, not dwarf, man, elf, or hobbit, could read them. Their heads probably exploded if they did. How does your uncle fare? Keeley looked up. He's recovering, he said, and then he wrinkled his nose. He got a bit obsessive. He does that. Yes, I know. Mahal brought out something that glowed from his forge with his cupped hands, something that sparkled and shone. Keeley's eyes skittered away from it. It was a bit like looking at the sun. Spots danced before his eyes. I made him stubborn, after all. Seems like that's a trait you're fond of, Kiwi complained and rubbed at his eyes. Ow! It has served you all well, Mahal said. Do not look at the light directly, Kiwi. Your eyes are not made for it. Could have warned me earlier, Kiwi grumbled, pressing his fingers against his eyelids. Thorin rests now, I trust. If you can call what he's doing resting, Kiwi said still prodding at his eyes. Little sparkles and starbursts exploded behind his closed eyes. Rather pretty, really. 
He's back at his forge because grandfather will smack him silly if he goes back to the chamber of Sansukul today. He's making a pot-bellied stove. He pulled a face. It has flowers on the door. Mahal laughed again, the muted thunder bit rolling through Keeley's chest. He's very upset, I think, Keeley continued, and he blinked his eyes open. They were watering a little, and they smarted and stung. He's upset about Gimli and that elf, and he's upset that Gimli saw him. Though in Durin's name, I can't think why. And he's upset about Bilbo again for some reason. He won't talk about it. Well, Thorin doesn't talk about much when he's upset. He just gets surly. Surlier. He begins to understand, my son, Mahal said. And the great hand lowered to touch Keeley's shoulder gently. Keeley trembled as the hand passed over his face. But his eyes stopped their stinging and watering immediately. He begins to realize many things. Keeley folded his arms. Oh? You're as mysterious as Gandalf, you know that? Mahal smiled, and Keeley felt it as a blooming warmth upon his face. I take that as a great compliment. Olorin is a wise counselor. He's got another name, Keeley said, frowning, before shaking it off. All right, so what is it he begins to realize? And what's it got to do with his gift, then? His great maker reached for his hammer, denser and darker than the black of night. He took it up and hefted it in his hand. He begins to understand that his guilt and self-punishment serve no one. He begins to know in his heart that he was loved, and that in his life and death he accomplished much that was good. He begins to move on. Thorin, move on? Kili asked with skeptical disbelief. <laughs> right. Mahal brought his hammer down with a crash like the collapse of a mighty glacier. He does, reluctantly and with no little pain, but he begins to change. Keeley abruptly remembered the teasing of two days ago and wondered, I suppose, is that why he's so upset about Gimli? Because it's different? You should ask him, my child, Mahal said gently. Our fierce young star is perceptive. He sees and hears clearly, more clearly than most. Thorin's eyes are still clouded, but they begin to open wider. What about mine? Keeley asked eagerly, and Mahal chuckled, bringing his hammer down once more. Ah, merry little prince. You have always had bright eyes. Keeley huffed out a breath. Yes, definitely as mysterious as Gandalf. Gimli is caught up in the greatest transformation to happen to the world since the last age, Mahal continued. I foresee that his quest will change more than himself. Already it begins. Long divisions are brought to the surface, and ancient lies are exposed to the light. The elf, Legolas. Keeley murmured. I... Mahal stopped and stood back from the glowing thing, his eyes regarding it critically. You should leave, my son. You will not be able to withstand the next step of the forging. In a moment, Keeley said, and settled himself more comfortably. So, about that hobbit. Thorin? Setting aside the metal he was filing, the legs of the stove, ready to be welded to the belly of the thing, Thorin looked up. His father was standing at the door of his forge looking profoundly disappointed. Yes, yes, I should be resting, he grunted, and took up a towel to wipe the metal shavings from his workbench. I cannot lie bed all day, not when Gimli knows I am with him, not when elves make friends with dwarves and the ring moves ever closer to Mordor. My gift is needed. I am needed. I am not made for inactivity, Adad. It will soon drive me mad. The minute the words left his mouth, he winced. Thrain's shoulders hunched a little before he sighed. No, no, I am not offended, no need for that face. Nor I am not made for long leisure either, my lad, 
but you have nearly worked yourself to a standstill, and I cannot watch you do it again. Please, Thorin, I have said it before, and I shall say it one more time. We are here if you need us. Thorin raised his eyes, a protest on his lips. The minute he felt his father's gaze, all the words fled. Thrain looked sad and wrung out, his muddy hands open and lax at his sides, and his great head slightly stooped. Thorin swallowed, and then he said, I do not know how to let you help, father, he said, hating every word. I cannot. You have been alone a long time, son, Thrain said, and he crossed to Thorin to pull him into a rough embrace. Thorin's back immediately stiffened, and he had to force himself to relax into his father's arms. You have shouldered the cares of our people for so long. You do not have to carry that weight all alone. You have dwaros of skill around you. Let them help. How? Thorin said, dark and low. My mind is a whirl, and it will not let me rest. I cannot let this rest, Adad. I cannot give this to another. No one is suggesting that, Thrain said, and he flicked an iron filing from Thorin's beard but you are not using what you have available to its greatest advantage in your determination to do it all yourself. We have scribes and sneak thieves and dwarf lords and miners and healers amongst us. Don't you think that Balin might know a thing or two about tight scheduling? He was a seneschal, Thorin. The job requires a lot of juggling. Young Ori could be an excellent keeper of information, yes? And his brother is a born spy if I have ever seen one. Beefwood's mining has made him as patient as the very stones chipping away in silence, and somehow he never gets bored. He is a natural watcher. Your mother is perceptive and shrewd, and your brother and nephews have energy to spare. You must use all this talent, son. You cannot take it all upon yourself any longer. I will not permit it. Will not permit, Florin said, jerking back to glare at his father. His father glared back, and there was a flicker of the splendid and mighty prince under the mountain in his eye. I will not permit it, he repeated sternly. I understand, son. Do you think I don't? I left all by myself to retake Erebor, and look what it did to me. You are our leader in this, and none will gainsay your word. However, if you think we will idly stand by and watch you ruin yourself and your zeal, I strongly suggest you think again. We are here, Thorin. Use us. Thorin seethed, hating the necessity of it, hating the sense his father was making. Thrain's dark eyes bored into his, and he clasped Thorin's shoulder firmly. Now, you will call another meeting. Ori will write down our decisions, and together you, me, Balin, Oin, my father, and your mother will use our best judgment to create a schedule. Regular conferences should be held. We must share all this information that is being gathered. We must hold fast together, or not at all. I will not sacrifice more of my family to our stubbornness. Thorin's mouth opened slightly, and then he pressed his lips together. The more he learned, the more there was to learn his weaknesses. He must come to accept them, just as Bilbo had said. The very concept made the flesh creep all down his back, but he would see it through nonetheless. For Bilbo. You are right, he muttered, and turned away. I know I am. Your sense of duty does you credit, Thorin. Your love for Gimli and your hobbit is praiseworthy. But duty or no, you are important, and I will not see you tear yourself to pieces, Thrain said, and he pulled Thorin close again. Then his nose wrinkled. And now you, my firstborn, are going to go bathe and wash your hair. You smell. Any more orders, Thorin said, trying to repress his glower. He knew he wasn't succeeding. Smile, now and again, Thrain said gently, 
and he cupped his huge and powerful hand against Thorin's cheek. I promise you your face will not break. I believe Nori has offered good odds to the contrary, Thorin grumbled, and Thrain laughed. No doubt. Go on, then. Bathe. Eat some more. Rest another day and refresh yourself. Then we will have our meeting, and we will muster the true strengths of our people. Thorin nodded in silence, his beard rasping against his father's palm. Thrain pressed his brow against Thorin's briefly, and then led him from the forge. And pull, my lads, up it goes. The cry rang out over the battlements of Erebor, and Ori shaded his eyes with the flat of his hand as he peered up at the huge wooden beam, riveted and braced with metal struts, as it slowly tilted up into the air. The rope that was bearing it upright was being hauled upon by at least twenty dwarrows, and Orla was overseeing the operation with a steady, steely dark eye. How does it go? asked Dis, coming up beyond her lieutenant and speaking softly. We have three more mangonels to construct after this, Orla replied, her eyes never moving from the scene. A great voice sergeant was hollering orders at them, and many dwarrows were red-faced and panting. The catapults in the cauldrons are complete. Dis hummed for a moment before stepping beside Orla and crossing her arms as she watched the grunting dwarves try to lever the massive beam into position. And the long-range small arms? Eight hundred crossbows, Orla said, and she sighed. It's still not popular. Bombur's girl? is leading those who are using longbows. Still, we're not likely to have a full contingent of archers unless the elves arrive. Dees nodded slowly, before she lifted her chin to peer over the mass of straining bodies. Where is Quartermaster Dori? Quartermaster? Ori squeaked, and then he clapped his hands over his mouth as pride began to make his chest puff out to twice its original size. He stepped out to see to the supply chain to the Iron Hills, Orla said. He won't be pleased with the progress so far. Dori doesn't like it when people shilly-shally, Ori told them, before doing an awkward but happy little dance on the spot. His brother, Dori son of Zori, of the line of Imri the courtesan, base-born and gossiped about, now high guildmaster of Erebor and quartermaster of the armies of Durin's folk. Wait till Nori heard. How do the new recruits fare? Dee said after a slight pause. Orla's stern face softened a little in exasperation. Oh, that well? More discipline is required. Orla growled, and she snapped her head back to look at the beam, which was slowly rising into the vertical position. They have worked hard, that I will grant them, she added grudgingly. These chuckled. It is a long time since Dane led the most regimented army of dwarves in Middle-earth. The folk of the Iron Hills have grown soft, and so have we. This is a far cry from my grandfather's great host, twenty thousand strong, and all trained to the peak. We have lost so many, and the years of peace have lulled us into a sense of false security. Now we must race to catch up. You long beards are always so gloomy, Orla said, and she ignored Dees's politely incredulous look. They train hard. They fight well. We may not have the most regimented of armies, but they are fierce and they defend their home. What more is needed? We're gloomy, Dees muttered. Orla, I've been your friend for sixty years, and I have never, ever heard you laugh. I haven't heard a good joke in sixty years, Orla said, her dark face completely deadpan. That might have something to do with it. Rope snapped, someone suddenly shouted, and Dees swore, her gray hair escaping her braids as she darted forward. More shouts rang through the air, growing more and more shrill. The beam wobbled in its nest of ropes, teetering on its end. It'll come down. Hold it steady, it's not going to come down. It will if you keep waggling about like that. Hold still! I can't hold on! Idiots! Dees breathed, and she began to push through the milling crowd to get to where the beam was now lurching dangerously. 
Hold strong, she roared as she pushed through. What in the name of Durin's dirty socks is going on here? Came Dori's appalled screech, and Ori flinched. He knew that tone. You hold on to that rope. No, the rope, the other rope. Oh, I'll do it myself. Get out of the way. A hush fell over the crowd as Dori stumped through, his hair neatly bound in its elaborate braids, his guildmaster's chain about his shoulders, and his lovely face flashing with irritation. He took a rope off a wheezing dwarrow and tutted at them all, his lips pursed. You want a thing done? Do it yourself, he announced grumpily, and hauled upon the rope. The beam immediately righted itself, and Dori braced it with his shoulder. Right, he puffed. Tied into place. Quickly, I'm not holding this thing all day. That is impressive, Orla said, catching up to Dis. The first advisor laughed. Dori's strength has not faded over time, I see. The mango nut will stand in a couple of hours, now he is here. What was that cry? came a voice from the stairs behind them, and Ori spun to see the queen, her steel-threaded beard glittering, making her way towards them. Dwalin stood beside her, his arms folded. Shamuk, majesty, said Orla, bowing low. The support beam for the newest mangonel began to fall. Our quartermaster righted it. Damned show-off, Dwalin grunted, and Orla's eyebrow arched at her husband as she righted herself. Jealousy, dear, she said, her dark eyes impassive. Damned right I'm jealous, Dwalin said bluntly, and Ori giggled a trifle beneath his clasped hands. I'm a dwarf, I'm a durin, I'm meant to be jealous. Enough, General Dwalin. Queen Thira said in her low, forge-roughened voice. Her face was thin and elegant, surrounded by a plethora of black braids that swept up into a knot at the base of her head. More braids cascaded down from the knot, surmounted with gem-studded steel beads. She was thin, with the deceptively wiry strength of the dedicated smith. How does the work proceed? Well enough, now that Dori is here, Orla said without a glance back at her husband. Looking at Dwelling's face, Odi bit down on a grin. Whoever said that the black lock Dwardam was without extensive humor had obviously never seen her tease Dwelling. The steel for the struts is done, Thira continued, and she frowned as she watched Dori fussing over the lashing down of the huge main beam. My forgers haven't had time to burn out in weeks. What is he doing now? Dee said, shaking her head. He's cleaning the face of that dwarl, sighed Dwelling. He tipped back his white head. Ugh, Dori never changes. Oh, Dori, Ori said sadly, watching as his brother crowled a set of stunned soldiers with a handkerchief and a scowl. Puffed from their efforts, bemused by Dori's beauty and perplexed by a scolding, they held still as Dori mopped at their faces. An utter disgrace, the lot of you, Dori finished up, and he sent them on their way with a sniff. Take a little more pride in yourself, thank you very much. Now, Mr. Foreman, where are we? I have three cartloads of wood that must be stored up here somewhere, and there's not enough room to swing a cat. What do you mean, somewhere else? Piffle, we need that wood to heat the cauldrons in case you've forgotten. Or are you offering to lug a potful of molten metal from the lower levels to the battlements yourself? Your mother's the whole mountain, said Thira, her mouth twitching. The reddened and heat-blasted capillaries on her cheeks moved as she fought her smile. He does, Dwelling said, and he raised a wry eyebrow. In the absence of his brothers, only every dwarrow left in existence will do. Oh, you say that as though you hate it when he looks after Balin and Fredin for us, Orla murmured. Dwelling cleared his throat. Never said that. Dies laughed softly, and then she turned her eyes to the queen. I didn't expect to see you up here today, Thira. Not my usual scene, no, Thira said wryly, and she pulled at a leather apron. To be truthful, I'd much prefer to be down at my forge still, but the work is moving so fast now, and everything is so urgent. I felt it better to break the habits of a lifetime and come see what yet needs to be made. The armories? asked Dwelling, and Thita snorted inelegantly. Oh, please. I had the armor stockpiles replenished four decades ago, 
and I have all my masters and journeymen churning out axes and swords as fast as you can blink. The apprentices are on arrows. Dees frowned, watching Doherty corral a section into moving some of the stockpiles of wood into a corner. But we do not know if the elves will help. Thera smiled grimly. I know. Still, we'll have the arrows for our own if the elves keep to their forests. Which they most likely will. Damned point ears wouldn't come out of their bolt holes to piss on a dwarf if he were on fire, dwelling growled. Orla put her scarred hand upon his arm, and he settled reluctantly. My son will do his best, Vera said, and her head lowered slightly. He's a persuasive boy, when he can be bothered to hold on to his temper. Whether the elves come or no, Thorin will have done Erebor proud, Dees said, her marvelous voice cracking upon her cousin's name, and more arrows will make Bomfries and our archers happy. Thera lifted an eyebrow. You say that now. The apprentices are apprentices for a reason, after all. Orla cocked her head, her great tail of black hair curling down her bare shoulder. I doubt they'd complain if an arrowhead wasn't perfectly filed, not when so many are required. Bomfries and her archers will be very put out if all the arrows go to the weed-eaters, Dees commented, and Thera chuckled. Tell Bombord last not to worry. My apprentices aren't running out of iron ore anytime soon, not after the western tunnels were reopened last year. Bofud is on that, said Dwalin. And he keeps taking that wild little scamp of a son of his down there with him, groaned Orla. And where one goes, Dwalin groaned as well. The other follows. We Thorin should know better. He does, he said, and then she laughed sadly. But Gimis has too much of his uncle about him. Others will follow where he leads, even if they aren't sure why. Still missing your young cousin, eh? Thira patted Dees's shoulder. I'm sure he's fine and well, no doubt. I could have meant Bombur, Dees said in a tight voice, and Dwalin chuckled. Aye, but you didn't. Dees held herself stiffly for another moment, before she relented, her steel-gray head dropping. Yes, I miss him. It has been eight months, and no word. Now, now, said Thira kindly. Gimli is well enough, I'm certain of it. Be comforted, sister. Dees sighed, and then she looked up. Oh, what on earth is he doing now? Is he braiding their hair? Thira said blankly, and Dwalin closed his eyes. Ah, Dori, he muttered underneath his breath. I will thump you, just see if I won't. Now there's the fight every Dwarrow has been waiting to see for eighty years, said Dis. Dori versus Dwalin. Dori to win, Ori immediately blurted, and then remembered that A, Nori wasn't here, and B, he was dead, and no one could hear him. Drat and botheration, he mumbled. How can such a damned strong dwarrow be such an old... Dwalin's grumbles trailed off, and he stared over the sward of lush green that had once been the desolation of the dragon. See there? Can you see that? A great host approaches. The messenger again, Dee said heavily, and she turned to the southern side with resignation in her lined eyes. No, Orla said, and for once there was a smile on her face. It looked so unnatural on her that Ori had to blink. Those are elves. Elves? Dwalin said in blank shock and he pushed the crowding, gossiping soldiers aside to make his way to the side of the battlements. Can you see? Dori shouted to him. My eyes aren't what they were. They never were, Dwalin shot back, and Dori grunted and made a rude gesture at him, and Ori gasped, Dori, in scandalized astonishment. Those are elves, or I'm a troll. Any fool could see that, Dori said dismissively. I meant the figure in the lead. That's no elf. Can you see? Dee said to Thira. You're younger than the rest of us. Here, come to the front. Thira glanced over the battlements, and her eyes widened. Inudoi, she breathed. That's the stone helm, she said, and she put a hand to her pattern-shaped cheek in shock. He persuaded Thranduil, but I thought it impossible. Thorin's stone helm, Dwalin roared, echoed by Ori, 
Dordi and Orla. The cry was taken up around the battlements as the host of elves moved to the gates, passing between the great statues of heroes long dead. The stone helm is back, the shout rose from every throat. The stone helm returns, open the gates. I, Fira said, her mouth working soundlessly for a moment. Then she gave up on words and turned to run back towards the stairs. Dis raised her hand, and every eye swung towards the first advisor, Princess Averebor, and the line of Turin. Open the gates, she cried, her glorious voice carrying like a struck bell, and echoing from the smooth rock faces of the walls. Erebor welcomes her prince and her allies. The cheer that greeted the statement was deafening. Dwalin slumped beside his wife, his good eye turning to her. We don't stand alone, he said, confusion and gratitude worrying in his face. Not at this time, said Dis, and her hand tightened on the walls of the battlements. Not this time. Sauron will find the north a little more difficult to subdue than he was expecting, said Dori in satisfaction. Serves him right. Du Bekad, roared Orla, brandishing her heavy blacklock sword in defiance, and it was repeated by the whole mountain as the stone helm passed between the gates, followed by a mighty host of tall elves in grey-green, bows strapped to their backs and eyes cold. The cry of challenge rang through the air, making the very mountain shake with it. Dwellin gritted his teeth, obviously torn about the presence of the elves. When Dis raised her fist to join in the joyous shout, he groaned in defeat and finally joined in. Dubekad! Dubekad! To arms! To arms! The next morning came swiftly, and Thorin woke to see his grandfather sitting at his side. Am I under arrest now, he said sardonically, pushing himself up to one elbow. Do I need a keeper? You need a slap upside the head, but your mother has forbidden me, Thror said gruffly. No, I'm here to take you to the chamber of Sansukul and then to bring you out again. No day's long vigil for you this time, my lad. Thorin brightened. Then I may go to Gimli, Zaram. Thror snorted loudly. You may go to Gimli, you mean. After you've eaten, Nidoel. Up you get now, I'll meet you at table. Thorin scowled after his grandfather as he made his way from the room. Stop making that face, Thror said calmly without even turning around. Grumbling, Thorin stalked from the bed and closed the door behind Thror's back. He was 195 years old, a king, a warrior, and a leader, and his family was convinced he was an errant child. Still, he had to admit to himself that he had not thought ahead. He had rushed headlong into his new obsession, stubborn and single-minded as always, and had overreached himself. Dwalin would have laughed himself sick. Very well, he would reach out and accept help. He would, he would lean on others. He would allow them to prop him up. He would accept that he could not do everything. He would acknowledge his own shortcomings his mortal weaknesses. Thorin repressed a wince of revulsion at the thought, and dressed himself with purpose. He felt rather as though he was arming himself for battle, instead of a breakfast with his family. Entering the closest of the vast dining chambers, Thorin made his way directly to where his grandfather's white head could be seen, a beacon amongst all the other dwarves that milled around. His mother immediately piled a plate and put it in front of him, and his brother hovered anxiously as he sat and began to eat. Thorin, he asked, wringing his hands, are you feeling better? I'm fine, he said curtly. Throd kicked him underneath the table. Thorin sent his grandfather a dirty look before he relented. I know I worried you, Fredin. I, I'm sorry. Did Thorin just apologize? Pili whispered in shock, and Keely nudged him into silence. Thorin glanced over at his nephews before placing his spoon down and splaying his hands flat upon the surface of the table. All eyes turned to him. I know I have worried all of you, he said, and his words were halting but clear. He steeled himself. He was not accustomed to such things, and he profoundly disliked the feeling of exposure it gave him. I apologize. I will not allow my obsessions to overtake my good judgment again. 
damned right, said Herrera bluntly, because I will knock you out before it happens again, my indomitable grandson. Keely leaned forward, his eyes wide and concerned. Did you want to talk about it? No, Thorin immediately snapped, and Keely flinched back a little. Cursing under his breath, Thorin pinched the bridge of his nose. Again, I'm sorry, he muttered. Keely namadula I. Gimli knows now, Keely said, his hand landing on his brother's shoulder and squeezing. That can't be easy for you. No, it is not, Thorin said, his throat tightening around the words. Mahal below, but the sense of being stripped and exposed was abominable. He hated and despised every second of it. Frankly, I'm amazed that any living dwarf can have any knowledge of the mysteries at all, remarked Fries. I thought it was forbidden. Who knows what powers that elf woman has, Thorin said, looking up. His nephews and brothers were watching him closely, and he repressed a scowl and looked back down at his plate. I'm glad Gimli knows. I'm glad. I've wished, time after time, that he... He broke off and took a bite of the bread and honey. Perhaps Bilbo's tactics would work better for him? So, not Gimli, said Feely, his face thoughtful. Of course not, Keeley said. He loves Gimli. Perhaps he's afraid? I'm sitting right here, Thorin growled, and his nephews both shrugged. Since you never talk about anything, we have to speculate, Feely pointed out with unassailable and impertinent logic. So, are you afraid? Thorin hesitated, and then he felt his mother's shrewd eyes upon his face. Yes, he muttered. Ah, silly boy, Rera said, shaking her head. Gimli would not reject you. Gimli is a dwarf alone. He mourned you, and he has always respected you and heard you clearly. Take that as a positive sign. Positive. Thorin. Keely snorted, and at Thorin's dark look he applied himself to his meal again. Gimli. Thorin bit down upon the inside of his cheek. I do not wish to talk of that. I will find out soon enough. Besides, that is not the issue that concerns me the most. It's the elf, then, Thorin said, uncertainly. Thorin's hand suddenly slammed down upon the table. Yes, it is the damned elf. They are enemies. They should hate each other. Furinith, Fris said wearily, and he interrupted her, his temper flaring. I'm no mewling child. No, that you are not, she said levelly. But you have been in a foul mood ever since Gimli and the elf reached an accord. You have done nothing to deserve such treatment, my son. Thorin's heart sank, and he rubbed at his face, his bread falling back to his plate. Mohilali harubas hupma, he groaned into his palms. Forgive me. Freda hit the back of his head. Language, she snapped. Call the meeting, Nudoi, Thrain advised. Doing something productive will cool that dudin temper of yours. Don't blame him for being cantankerous about that damned elf, Throd growled beneath his breath. Freda gave her husband a level look, and his eyes snapped back to his plate hurriedly. Yes, yes, Thorin said, still muffled by his palms. A hand tentatively settled on his forearm, and he peered out between his fingers to see Fredin gazing up at him. His brother's painfully young face was creased with worry. Do you want me to come with you, Adad? he whispered. Thorin regarded his brother for a moment, the words of his grandparents and parents all swirling through his mind. They warred with the utter outrage induced by the elves' audacity in befriending his father's enemy, and the elated fear at Gimli's new knowledge. He felt full of conflicting, deafening thoughts, and far too small to contain them. I, he said eventually, I, Nadad, that would be well, I would welcome you. Fredin blinked, and then he beamed. Then I am with you. Thorin dropped his hand to clasp Fredin's, and not for the first time he swallowed the shock at the difference between his hand and his adolescent brother's. So small, so small and unmarked. Thank you. Better, Pteta said primly. Now eat up. Thor will be watching the chamber, so don't you pair or get any ideas. Grandmother, Fredin protested. She held up a warning finger. My memory is not so bad as all that. 
I remember what you two used to get up to. I wish I did, Keely muttered. The rest of breakfast passed without further interruption, and Thorin soon stood and met his grandfather's eyes. How long, he asked in a level voice. Four hours at first, he said firmly. Then you must take a break and eat something. I will come and get you. Understood? Thorin sighed, but forbore to comment. Then he turned to his mother and bent to sweep her beard away from her upper cheek and kiss her. I'm sorry, Ahmad, he murmured. I am proud of you, Inudoi, she said, smiling with her eyes. I know it is not easy to change. Thank you for accepting our advice. He nodded, before turning and striding from the dining chamber. The slap of Fredin's boots against the stone could be heard following him. Thorin, wait, he said, and he slowed his stride a little to allow his brother to catch up. I haven't finished my drink, he complained. Mindful of his impatience, and now very wary of his temper, Thorin stopped and looked down at his brother. Did you want to go back, he asked carefully. Gimli and Bilbo were only seconds away, waiting on the other side of the starry skin of Gimlin Zaram. Nah, let's go, Fredin said, searching Thorin's eyes. You're about to explode or something, and believe me, after the last dramatic day or two, I'm a bit scared of that happening. You can be very intimidating, you know that? He could feel the corner of his mouth twitching. Thank you. Not a compliment, Fredin grumbled. Come on, let's not waste any time before Grandfather comes and hauls us out by the year. Passing through the pearly arch, Thorin took his seat, and Fredin nudged him over to allow him room to sit beside him. Thorin grudgingly made a space before glancing over to where Ori sat. The scribe's eyes were distant and unfocused, his face half-illuminated in the gloom. Where is he? I have had no updates for two days. Dunno. I suppose we'll find out, Fredin said. Come on, big brother. Let's go see your firebrands, shall we? What did Gimli think, now that he was aware that a dead dwarf claimed to watch him and know him and love him as a father loved his son? The apprehension clawed at Thorin's belly again, but he forced it down ruthlessly. Yes, Lothlorien. It took no time at all for the dancing flecks of light to begin their whirling beneath the silvery surface of the pool. The stars seemed to welcome him back after his enforced absence, enfolding him in their luminous embrace and sending thrills of heat to the very heart of him. Thorin opened his arms and let them swallow him, let them turn him inside out and send him back to those he loved. Even before his eyes had shaken off the blinding light, he could hear the rumbling deep voice of his star, well-loved and familiar, echoing in his ears. Gimli, he said, and stepped forward blindly, blinking furiously. His heart leaped in his breast. So very tall, Gimli was saying, and there was the sound of his heavy dwarf boots striking the wood. Why don't they make moving platforms? Wouldn't be hard. A few pulleys, a few ropes, a winch or two, and boarding's your uncle. I'll wager I could throw together blueprint by lunchtime. Peace, Master Dwarf, came the light laughter of the elf and Thorin clamped down on a growl. These woods have stood unchanged for millennia. I do not think they are ready for such dwarvish ingenuity and innovation. It is a long way to climb, is all I'm saying, Gimli said, and Thorin's eyes gradually focused upon his star. His face was disgruntled as he stomped back up the winding stairs of the great Malorn to the flat where they had met Galadriel and Celeborn, Gimli in second last place, and the elf bringing up the rear of the fellowship. They're not difficult at all. We've been using them forever. Well, you soon find yourself thinking of new ways to make life easier in a mine, let me tell you. You have worked in a mine? Lad, I've been working mines since I was fifty, and they are no picnic, Gimli said, and he reached out to touch the silvery bark of the mallorn as he made his way ever upwards, following the shield of Bodomir as they climbed. Still, you'd miss the sight and scent of the trees if you took a platform, he said in a slightly quieter voice, and his straight, dooting brow smoothed out. Perhaps the old way is better after all. We shall make an elf of you yet, Gimli. Douglas smiled. Ha! That will take some doing, chuckled Gimli. 
I warn you, I'm a sight too heavy to go walking on snow as you do. Legless's answering laugh was soft. Perhaps not. We would need to see what lies beneath that beard of yours, my friend, and I know enough to fear for my life should I come at you with a razor. Behold, blessed balls, Gimli choked, and his fingers rose to thread through the enviable mass of his ruddy, handsome beard. Don't say such vile things. Hold your tongue, you damned weed-eater, Thorin snarled. You cannot possibly know what a dwarf's beard means. Gimli stopped abruptly, as though he had run into an invisible wall. His bright head snapped up, and his eyes widened. Then he whispered a quiet oath beneath his breath, and his dark eyes shone. Hail, my lord, he said in a voice that could barely be heard. I thought you had abandoned me. Never, Thorin said, and a huge nebulous joy built in his chest and throat. Never, my star. Gimli, Melonin. Legolas had almost crashed into Gimli's broad back, and he looked down upon the dwarf in confusion. Why do you stop? Are you well? I'm well, Gimli said loudly, before he dropped his voice to a mere rumbling whisper. Makatakluti melchekrel. Shandi inudoi kardlu, Thorin replied. Then he reached out and his fingers wrapped themselves in Fredin's sleeve. He knows I'm here. But he can't hear you properly, Fredin pointed out. Thorin was too overwhelmed to notice. It matters not, he said wildly. He knows I'm here. He senses my presence so clearly. Abadizu, said Gimli, and he smiled. Bakken krelek ra yadushun Thorin trindul. Gimli, said the elf, his fair face drawing in worry. What is it? Ah, not now, Gimli said softly, and he shook his head. Nothing, Legolas, he said, and he began to move up the stairs again. A small twinge in the leg, nothing more. The elf seemed suspicious. And a hardy dwarf is susceptible to twinges in the legs? He is if he is made to climb so many stairs, Gimli said triumphantly, and Thorin could not help but laugh with pride at how neatly he had turned the conversation back around. Your mood swings faster than an axe and is just as cutting, Fredin muttered. Now you're happy? Gimli, Legolas, came Aragorn's voice from above. Hurry up. I'm going to get tired of hearing that man say that, Gimli predicted before he bent his head and picked up his pace. His boots made an absolute racket against the thin and graceful wood. Well, they know you are coming, Legolas said wryly. Gimli only growled and applied himself to making it up the winding stairs. As they stepped onto the wide talon, Thorin was again taken aback at the radiance that spilled from the lord and the lady of the golden wood. Gimli immediately moved to the forefront of the fellowship, and Sam and Mary exchanged bemused and amused glances as the dwarf gazed up at the Lady Galadriel with something very much approaching worship. It seems Thranduil's son isn't the only elf that Gimli feels an affinity for, Fredin said, and Thorin blew out a breath. The elf woman spoke to him fairly, and in our ancient tongue. She gave him peace in a land of strangers, and gave me the gift of his knowledge, he said grudgingly. She is powerful, but she means no harm. Fredin paused, and then he turned to look into Thorin's face, his expression serious. Something is different with you, isn't it, Nadad? he asked. You never would have said that before. Thorin folded his arms and scowled like a thunderstorm. I concede that perhaps she is no danger to Gimli. Thrand will spawn, on the other hand. Hmm, Fredin said, his bare brows rising. Then he turned to watch the lord and lady of the Galadrim move before the fellowship again, their faces serene and their footsteps soundless. If you say so, big brother. The lady spoke at length with Aragorn, and Thorin found himself studying this fellow crownless king for a moment. The man touched a jewel at his neck and bowed his head, and Galadriel brought her hand up to touch his head in blessing. There was a warning in her eyes. Cloaks were given to each member of the fellowship, grayish-green like the garb worn by the elves around them. Gimli fingered the material curiously, and brought the clasp up to squint at it with a knowledgeable eye. 
Not bad work, he murmured to himself. Not bad work at all. Are these magic cloaks, said Pippin, looking at them with wonder. Celeborn laughed in his low, musical voice. I do not know what you mean by that, he said. They are fair garments, and the weave is good. Leaf and branch, water and stone, they have the hue and beauty of all these things unto the twilight of Lodian that we love. You may find them a great aid in keeping out of the sight of unfriendly eyes, wherever it is you walk. You are indeed high in the favor of Our Lady, for she herself and her maidens wove these. Never before have we clad strangers in the garb of our own people, said Haldir, and he glanced disdainfully down at Gimli as he spoke. The dwarf had no eye for the March Borden, however, but was looking upon his cloak with a new and appreciative gaze. From the lady's own hand, he murmured. Ah, Zabadel, do you see how lucky I am? I see it, Gimli, Thorin said grudgingly. It is a fine cloak. Gimli's head lifted, and a spark of amusement flickered in his eyes. Ah, you do not approve, he said. I do not mind the lady's gifts, Thorin said, and ignored the nudge that Fredin gave him. I do not ask for them, Gimli said, and he turned to watch as Galadriel handed Pippin and Mary a pair of silver belts, strung with sharp elvish daggers. Now, that is some dwarfish work there. I wonder who the maker was. Gifts from Moria, long ago, Celeborn said, his face impassive as he answered the dwarf. Gimli bowed in response. Then I am pleased my people were able to gift anything of beauty to a land so replete with it, he said, and Fredin whistled. Smooth talker, isn't he? Oh, you have no idea, Thorin said, and watched Celeborn's face with some satisfaction as the lord tried to find a fault there in the elegant compliment. Boromir received a golden belt from the lady's hands, and his eyes rose to meet hers again. She smiled reassuringly, her hands rising to clasp his wrists. The man swallowed hard, and fear and pain briefly flitted across his face. Then he bowed his head in thanks. Legolas was next in line, and to him she presented a great longbow, taller and thicker than the bows of Mirkwood. Is that elf hair? Gimli hissed to him. You said they were strung with elf hair. Indeed it is, Legolas said, testing the draw and nodding in satisfaction at the heavy pull. Such carvings! My lady, I thank you. Nin velwi alalai ferin nalu en vin rilnin. The bow of the Galadrim is well suited for the great skill of our woodland kin, she said, smiling. Namarie, Legolas Tranduilion. You will find your place though it may be where you least expect it. Riddles, Thorin muttered. I dislike riddles. To Sam she gave a little box of grey wood, filled with soil so fine it seemed nearly mist. Thorin gave it a skeptical look, but noted that all three of the other hobbits were looking upon Sam with envy. For his part, the gardener went red right to the tips of his pointed ears and stammered something utterly incomprehensible as he bowed as best as he could. What on earth is the point of that? Thorin hissed. I'm not sure, Thorin said. But see how the other hobbits react. Huh. Fredin scratched at his golden hair, blue eyes puzzled. Hobbits are very enthusiastic about dirt, aren't they? I often think of Bag End. I miss my books, and my armchair, and my garden. Very, Thorin murmured. Gardens are important. Galadriel paused as she turned to Gimli, and her lips parted a little. Ah, she said, as though to herself. Then she smiled at Gimli. And what gift would a dwarf ask of the elves? None, lady, Gimli said, his chin lifting and his eyes shining with a kind of serene joy. It is enough for me to have seen the lady of the Galadrim and to have heard her gentle words. Beside Thorin, Fredin's jaw dropped open. Smooth indeed, Inmudoy, Thorin said, and he shook his head. Your audacity will get you everywhere, son of Gloin. Hear all ye elves, Galadriel cried, her face aglow and her arms open. 
Let none say again that dwarves are grasping and ungracious. Yet surely, Gimli, you desire something that I could give you. Name it, I bid you. You have already given me much, lady, Gimli said softly. Yet your hands are empty, she countered. But my heart is full. Durin's beard, Fredin said faintly. He speaks as prettily as a bard. The poet in him has slept too long, I think, said Thorin, folding his arms in satisfaction lest he burst with pride. He smiled at his star. It must always come out again in some spectacular fashion. I would not have you depart as the only guest without a gift, Aule's child, Giladriel said. Come, name that which I could give you, and it is yours. There is nothing, Lady Giladriel, Gimli said, bowing low and stammering a little. The tips of his stubborn Durin's ears reddened. Only... Galadriel's smile widened. Ah, yes? Gimli's head turned back up to her, his braids falling before his brows. Nothing, unless it is permitted to ask, nay, to name a single strand of your hair, which surpasses the gold of the earth as the stars surpass the gems of the mine. The intake of breath from the assembled elves was very loud in the sudden silence. I do not ask for such a gift, said Gimli, faltering beneath the sudden scrutiny, but you commanded me to name my desire. Astonishment was written upon every face, and Celeborn looked upon Gimli with wonder. But Galadriel laughed, and her laugh was as pure and soaring as birdsong. It is said that the skill of the dwarves is in their hands rather than in their tongues, she said, yet that is not true of Gimli. For none have made to me a request so bold and so courteous, and how shall I refuse, since I commanded him to speak? But tell me, what would you do with such a gift? Treasure it, lady, said Gimli promptly, in memory of your words to me at our first meeting and if ever I return to the smithies of my home, it shall there be set an imperishable crystal to be an heirloom of my house and a pledge of goodwill between the mountain and the wood until the end of days. Yes, if your wild nephew does not eat it first, Thorin said and turned his eyes upwards. Oh, my star, you have outdone yourself this time. Well, you are certainly a member of my family. You do not know when to stop, either. Galadriel paused, and then she straightened. Her hand went to the long river of silver and gold that cascaded down her back, and then her slim, white fingers began to unpick her braids. Melithnin, Caleboden said, taking a quick step forward. His eyes flashed. Galadriel turned her unearthly gaze upon her husband, and he subsided reluctantly. The elf stirred and murmured in amazement as the tresses blew free in the wind, shining like mingled gold and mithril and silver in the morning light. Gimli seemed unable to speak as the lady cut three hairs from her head and laid them in his rough, broad hand his eyes fixed upon them as though he could hardly believe what he saw. She folded his thick fingers over the hairs and bent before him. These words shall go with the gift, she said. I do not foretell, for all foretelling is in vain. On the one hand lies darkness, and on the other the slimmest of hopes. But if hope should not fail, then I say to you, Gimli, Gloinul, that your hands will flow with gold, and yet over you gold shall have no dominion. The sudden surge of self-loathing was sharp and acid. Thorin sucked a breath in through his teeth. No, brother, Bredin said gently, and he nudged him. No, stop it. Remember what our mum said, yes? I know, I know, Thorin managed, and then he raised his eyes to look upon Gimli. Well then, perhaps the curse of our line is truly broken. Bredin smiled. Perhaps. Gimli was staring at the glowing strands in his hands in disbelief, and then he looked up again at the elf woman with joy radiating from his face. Lady was all he said, and he bowed low in dwarvish fashion and with utter respect and gratitude. She inclined her head, smiling. Maziriki zugang kokil. Gimli laughed in delight. Aye, may all our paths take us to safe places.
What? said Ferrin blankly. She knows Kuzdul, Thorin groaned and slid a hand roughly over his face. Apparently she does not know enough to keep it to herself. Well, to be fair, neither does Gimli, Ferrin pointed out. To Frodo she gave a file filled with a silvery light, and then Galadriel bent to kiss the ring-bearer gently on the forehead. Despite their long rest in this peaceful land, Frodo appeared tired. He seemed far older, and his blue eyes were deeper and wider than they had been. Some change was being wrought in this young hobbit that Thorin could not understand. Bilbo will be sad, he said to himself. His hobbit would weep. He could not bear that. Bilbo should not be sad. He leaned in close to Gimli's ear. Gimli, do not forget Frodo, he murmured to his star as the fellowship turned and made their way for the stairs again. Far, far below, a party of elves awaited to take them to the shallow inlet that led to the great river Anduin. Here, Frodo, Gimli said immediately, tipping his head to where the ring-bearer marched along behind Aragorn. Can you believe it? I would never have believed, not in all the lives of elves and dwarves, that my request should be granted. Look, are they not beautiful? Very Gimli, Frodo smiled, and he watched the dwarf's great thick fingers, capable of such power and strength, nimbly coil the hairs into a loose braid, and tuck them inside a roll of fabric close to his heart. It is a wondrous gift. No more than yours, Mary said. I fancied I could see that little bottle shining without a single light glancing upon the glass. I wonder what would happen if he drank it, Pippin mused. Douglas choked, and then he threw his head back and laughed the silvery laugh of Elvenkind. I do not advise it, Aragorn said, his mouth curving into a smile. He touched the jewel at his throat. Save your breath for the climb, my friends. We have a long road ahead, and there may be few places such as Lothlorien to rest in safety. I suggest we ration our strength for the great river. I'm beginning to think that Gimli is right about you, Thorin muttered, looking up at the man. Aragorn remained a mystery, a king of men who ran from his kingship but never from his duty, raised by elves and beloved of an elf, but immortal nonetheless, a mighty warrior and a true-born heir of Numenor, hiding beneath the leathers of a ranger and the ignoble name of Strider. You are far too grim and dour. That's rich coming from you, said Fredin. Thorin ignored him. It was not long before the fellowship were packing bundles into the narrow boats used by the Galadrim. Gimli eyed them dubiously. They don't look very stable, he said. These boats are crafty and will not sink, no matter how heavily you laid them, said Haldir, who had accompanied them to the mooring spot. However, they are wayward if mishandled. I caution you to take care at first. Gimli looked doubtful, but Legless smiled. Come, Melonin, I shall take the first turn at the oars. No doubt you shall find your sea legs soon enough. You may be waiting for some time, Gimli said, but he clambered gingerly into the narrow grey boat anyway, clutching the sides with his great hands. Seems all right so far, he said to himself. Ah, but the real test is Anduin, and how far away is she, I wonder? Gimli's name was spoken in a hushed voice behind him, and it sent Thorin's head whirling around to where Bormir helped Aragorn load the other two boats, their heads bent close. I do not understand their wonder, Boromir was saying in a low voice. Why should a gift of three hairs amaze them so? Aragorn smiled once more, and the expression sat more easily on his face than Thorin was expecting. That is a long tale, and an old one. We have a little time here, and now before the river beckons, Boromir said, and he laughed suddenly. I have never seen an elf amazed before. It was worth coming to this place simply for that. Aragorn chuckled. It is not a regular occurrence, no. Well, in short, the lady of this wood is of the Noldor, those elves beloved of the craftsmen and smith of the Valar, Aule. Thorin jerked back, and at his side, Fredin whispered, Mahal loves elves? Was this before he loved us? He loves us, Thorin said staunchly. He gave us life. He gave me my gift. No other Vala loves us but Mahal. He loves us. 
The greatest and most skilled of that race was her uncle, Feanor. A fire lived in him that could not be quenched, to the ruin of all, Aragorn continued, and his smile faded to be replaced by his customary grim look. I will not speak more of those days, and the horrors wrought by arrogance and vengeance, not under the trees of his exiled kin. Suffice to say, many sorrows came into the world through both his skill and his pride. What has this to do with Gimli's gift? Boromir said, leaning against the lip of the grey boat and tilting his head. Ah, Aragorn's dark look softened a little. Feanor begged his niece for a strand of her hair three times, and three times she refused. Boromir blinked. Gimli does not know. No, Aragorn said, and his smile grew again. He does not know that the gift refused to the mightiest of the Noldor has now been granted to a dwarf. He does not know that the most skilled hands that have ever existed once yearned for that which he now holds. He will treasure those shining hairs for the love of the giver, not for their beauty or use to him. Boromir stared, and so did Thorin. Ma, Madin, he said, stunned. Maybe I'll find such joy in their lives, said Boromir gravely, and Aragorn nodded in agreement. We must leave all joy behind for a while, my brother, for now we leave Lothlorien, he said, and gestured to the boat in which Pippin and Mary sat, scrabbling amongst the supplies already. Take care of our brandy buck and our young took upon the waters of Anduin, and I will lead with Frodo and Sam. I know these waters. Boromir clapped his shoulder once, before moving to the two youngest hobbits, who sat in the bow of the second of the boats, their heads close together. They looked up suddenly, and guiltily as he approached, crumbs on their mouths. I was hungry, Pippin squeaked. Boromir only laughed and tousled his curls before clambering into the boat and pushing it from the shore with the help of Haldir. I'm beginning to realize why you love him so, Thorin, Fredin said, his voice hushed. A single strand was refused to a lord of elves, and three were given to a dwarf. Who could have predicted such a thing? He doesn't know, said Thorin, and he moved back to where Gimli sat, ripping the edges of his boat with a look of extreme trepidation on his face as Legolas pushed them from the shore with his paddle. Taking the bench beside his star, Thorin shook his head and gazed at his face, his dooting brow, his broad-beamed nose, his strong cheekbones and stubborn mouth. He has just received something extraordinary by virtue of who he is, through his honesty and humility and eloquence, and he doesn't even know. Ah, I've taken my worst wound at this parting, Gimli said suddenly, and his hand unclenched from around the side of the boat and pressed against his wide chest where the lock lay coiled beneath his brigandine. I have looked the last upon that which is fairest. Henceforward I will call nothing fair, unless it be her gift to me. Legolas dipped the paddle into the water and tilted his head in the strange bird-like manner that he shared with his father. Thorin bristled to have the elf's voice so close as he said, No, do not say that. Gimli, I count you blessed, for you have found and lost, and your loss you suffer of your own free will. Only faithfulness keeps you on this watery road. Dwarfs are not men for boats, I tell you, he growled and shook out his bright hair. Yet as I told Master Elrond, Faithless is he that says farewell when the road darkens. Ah, why did I come on this quest? Little did I know where the chief peril lay. Torments in the dark was the danger I feared, and it did not hold me back in the slightest. Nay, I leapt forward with my axe in my hands, nearly to my own death. But oh, the dangers of light and joy. They will cut me into ribbons where the orcs failed. My heart is all torn in two. And my lord, is he here with me? I am here, Gimli, Thorin said and clenched his hand tightly against his leg to stop himself from reaching for Gimli's wild braids. I'm here. He is here, Gimli said, and sighed gustily, relaxing heavily down into the boat. That is the king you saw in her mirror, Legolas said. It could have been a figment of Thorin's overtired, overstretched mind, but he seemed to see a flicker of apprehension in the elf's eyes. I, my cousin and king, Gimli said. Then he sent Legolas an arch look from under his brows, the one you threatened with your bow. Legolas visibly winced. 
Uh-oh, Fredin said and ducked. I offer him my most sincere apology, the elf said in a stilted, halting voice. Then he made a loud and disbelieving sound in the back of his throat. But how? How does a dead dwarf follow you? Gimli's lips snapped into a thin white line. You were there when I saw him, and so I cannot pretend otherwise, he said slowly. I have told you many secrets, for we are friends and comrades now, and that is as it should be. Indeed, I may have been over-reckless, and spoken more than I should. But this I cannot tell you, for no dwarf alive knows the mysteries. We know we go to the halls of our ancestors, and there we wait for the world that is to come. There, it is promised, we will finally be fully accepted amongst the children of Ilúvatar. We will be wanted and needed and loved at long last, after all our days of walking apart. But what the halls are, or where, this is not given to us to know. I do not know how my kin stay with me, and neither should I know, I suspect. He watched the banks of the river rushing away to either side of them. The singing of the Galadrim faded into the background. You have indeed been reckless, my star, Thorin said, and wondered at what would become of him. This dwarf, who received threefold the gift refused to a lord of elves in the dawn of time. You have always been a little reckless. Your uncle is rehearsing some choice words for you. Suddenly the magnitude of what Gimli had received struck him all at once, and he burst out, Oh, but I am proud of you. Please, Legolas, you must not mention it to the others, Gimli said, his face deadly earnest. This is one secret that should never have been spoken aloud. This is one step too far. Our accord is new indeed, but I know you will not betray me. Legolas' bright elven eyes grew concerned, and he was silent as he stroked the paddle through the water several times. Then he said, I will keep the secret, Melon, and no word of it shall pass my lips, not to any living creature, be they elf, man, or wizard. You are now my friend, Gimli. I am honored to hold your secrets, though I do not understand them. Thank you, Legolas, Gimli said, and his hand rose to touch the place over his heart where the lock was stowed once more. I do not know how, Gimli repeated softly, but I cannot help but be grateful. Legolas paused, and then he smiled that faint elven smile. I am glad for you, my friend. Gimli nodded, and then he smiled back. My friend. Additional notes. Galadriel and Fëanor. This is canon. Gimli will never understand the significance of the gift of the three hairs, which were said to shine like the light of the trees before the breaking of the world. Galadriel was not a participant in the atrocities that her uncle perpetrated, but as a Noldo who followed her kin to Arda without permission, she fell under the ban of the Valar nevertheless. Her exile will end at the close of the Third Age, due to her refusal of the One Ring. <laughs> 